Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I'm your host. Uh, flying solo again today. Um, but I do want to... Look, I want to talk about something that, that, you know, Regan and I have talked about before. And I think it's really important that we address it, um, especially now. And what I'm talking about is this, this tendency, if not allure, to Christianize or parallel our culture and belief systems to Christianity in an attempt to, to somehow defend our existence or our beliefs or, more importantly, our connection to our land. So what brings this to mind is... I was listening to, to NPR and heard a whole story about Oak Flats. Now, for those of you who don't know what Oak Flats is, it is a, it's a, a, a large area that is an area that is deemed by many Native people, Apache in particular, as a special place. Now, this use of the term sacred space or sacred place is something that, again, I think is overused because I don't know what part of our mother which is how we refer to the land, the earth, our ground that supports us, is more sacred than other places. But I understand that some places may have some significance, whether it's because of its absolute beauty or um, because there was an event that took place at at a certain place. I I get that. And And I think some places do require special attention. Residential schools, for instance. I mean, there's a lot of talk about... um, uh, digging up these uh, our, our loved ones, our our, our family members, our, the, who were children at the time, who were buried in unmarked graves, and there's a debate on whether they should be exhumed, um, and some attempt made to return them home, or whether those places should be designated as a as a special place, a shrine, or, or you know a uh, you know some sort of special monument put put there, or whatever. So I can understand how there there can be the attempt to to elevate a space for uh, for a special designation but sometimes i think we get carried away with the sacred sacred places thing because what i start to hear and and when i listen to the story about oak flats and let me explain oak flats oak flats is again it's this large area that was essentially given up to copper mining and it, there was an attempt to do this legislatively. Now, now, keep in mind, although this is ancestral native land, um, and I, I will admit that I don't know the full story on how the federal government comes to claim this land as their land. Um, I, I think most of that is fraud all the way around, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So the federal government is, has been attempting, and, and some of the powers that be in New Mexico and other places have wanted to make this, uh, you know, realize that this land had had potential for uh, had had copper deposits and so there was an attempt to take this land and put it in control or custody or ownership of a multinational mining corporation now there's been standalone legislation that was attempted for years to do this and it never it never got approved it was it was never authorized so what what they did is they do this maneuver that is oftentimes called um, midnight riders where they take something that the the broad, you know, bipartisan efforts in in Congress will not dare oppose, which is something like the, the National Defense Authorization Act, and so they'll they'll stick a bunch of riders on it. Now, turning Oak Flats into a copper mine has nothing to do with national defense. 
So <laughs> let's be clear about that. It's a scam. It's, it's corrupt. It's an unethical, immoral. So you get a couple of senators that push in the, uh, and the reason they call it midnight riders, because they do it in the middle of the night. They do it late when, you know, the term is about to expire or the legislative session is about to expire. And so this gets stuck on there. And because nobody wants to say they're not going to, you know, stand behind our troops and all that crap, that these things get authorized. So they attach this midnight rider to a National Defense Authorization Act and and it gets approved. In spite of the fact that there clear, there's clear opposition and there's clear native opposition to it. Now, we can get into the whole land claims debate to some extent on this thing, but that's not really the, the big issue here. Part of the, the big issue is how we are trying to fight this and how native people are trying to fight this. So as I'm listening to this NPR story, they had two lawyers representing two different groups that are trying to sue to stop this thing. And they've already lost in court and now it's in, in an appeals process. And they have one chief, I think from um, uh, San Carlos Apache territory. And they keep their emphasis on religion. And that's where I have a problem because there are lots of reasons to fight this, and obviously there's environmental reasons. And I understand the religious, the religion thing might be, um, maybe it's a stronger argument, but it should not be made in the absence of the stuff. And everybody who spoke on this NPR segment talked about the religious, um, religious freedom, the, uh, the the First Amendment of the of the U.S. Con uh, Constitution. Now, on that, to be clear. The, the Bill of Rights and the, and the amendments, the, well, the Bill of Rights in particular, so the, the First Amendment, which is uh, freedom of speech and religion and right to assemble, those are not granted in the Constitution. There's, those are rights that, it, in fact, all of the Bill of Rights are, are rights that, that are being acknowledged that the federal government or government in general has no authority to, uh, you know, to infringe upon. So let me say it again. These are not grants. These are not rights granted in the U.S. Constitution. They are actually supposed to be inherent rights protected by the U.S. Constitution. So, and, and so I got to put that out there because when I talk, start hearing people, our people, Native people, calling, saying our Constitution, constitutional rights, it's not our Constitution. So, so let's be clear. And, and, and I get really frustrated when I listen to Native people trying to defend their right as Americans, understanding or ignoring, perhaps, I should say, that it's the United States of America that has screwed us over the years, hundreds of years that they've screwed us. And this transfer of land to a, to a foreign company for copper mining is, is just another example of being screwed by the federal government. So I'm sorry if I take a little bit more offense than some, to this notion of claiming that the federal government, you know, is supposed to protect us. They've never protected us. And they certainly have been protected land. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a bit of a climate change thing going on here. Caused by man. And the United States being at the top of the list as far as, uh, as, far as polluters over, over the long haul. And, yeah, and, of course, we can argue who are going to be the biggest victims of that. I know that Native people oftentimes are among the more impoverished people who uh, suffer more dramatically than others, especially if they're in low-lying areas. I mean, there, there are 
uh, indigenous communities that are uh, island countries that are really facing extinction because of climate change. But that, that's another subject. So, so Oak Flats. When, when I listen to, to people trying to, to, to make this religious argument, I literally heard this chief of San Carlos Apache say that, this, that Oak Flats is our church. A longhouse is not our church. A sacred space is not our church. The land is not our church. Why? Because we don't have a church. Now, white people put churches on our land. And, and so let's not, let's not debate that. But to constantly parallel our belief system, and I don't, I don't even want to call it our religion. I want to call it our belief system and our culture. I mean, I listen to this guy basically saying that this place, this place is where we worship our God. And I got I to gotta push back on that, too. Because here's the problem. In our culture, we, we and, and I mean cultures, and, and if anybody has a culture that's, that's dramatically different from this, we talk about the power of creation. The reason we called it the great mystery, you know, or even the great spirit, is because we, we weren't necessarily personifying or um, humanizing that power of creation. Now, we've done it in stories. I mean, I'm Haudenosaunee, I'm, I'm Mohawk, I'm Gunyagahaga. And yeah, we have stories where we talk about you know, the right-handed twin and the left-handed twin, um, uh, you know, creating certain things. And, and there is language where we talk about uh, him being he who creates things. But even that story, this isn't the devil and, and God. That's not what this is about. This isn't about a creator as, as far as being um, a God. These stories are told uh, basically to teach children about creation and to, and, and to make a moral out of the story of creation. I mean, in, in fact, in our story, when we talk about the left-handed twin and the right-handed twin, we talk about the left-handed twin doing things like putting thorns on the bushes. Now, does that sound like an evil thing? Well, it, in a way, it protects the berries from being overeaten. It gives a place for, uh, for smaller animals to hide out and you know, pr get protected from, from those that prey upon them. It talks about putting rocks in the river and making a smooth river into an, into a turbulent you know set of rapids. Well, that purifies the, the water. So it isn't about good versus evil. It's about contrast. And that contrast, and, and especially when you consider some of what is attributed to the left-handed twin in the story, you realize that there is a good to the things that the left-handed twin balances the right-handed twin's creation with. And that's really what the story is about. It isn't about good versus evil. And, it's, and there's no place in, in my culture, in the Haudenosaunee culture, where there is this debate about God or an all-knowing, all-powerful creator in that way. We talk about the, the power of creation. In fact, we're told in my culture, we will not know the name or the face or the place that that power dwells. We will only see the evidence of it. And that is what we are supposed to be thankful for. The evidence of that create of that power of creation, the things that we see and touch, places like Oak Flats. So our relationship to even these so-called sacred places is based on just that, our relationship to those places. It's you know, look, I know everybody loves to over-spiritualize native culture and native belief systems. And to the point that we 
turn them into religion. And we talk about some of the things that we do that are part of our customs as ceremonies and almost as, as if they were religious rituals, sacraments. These are all words that don't apply to us. These are words that have been applied to us, and then we start to use them as, a, as some sort of way to justify our existence or to, to uh, again, to, to explain to white people that we value certain things the same way they value certain things. So we make these comparisons, but they're false comparisons. I would argue we don't have a religion. Now, I know there's, there's going to be some Native people out there who say, oh, no, we, we, have, we have a religion, we have this. Well, I dare say if you go to the language and you understand the etymology of some of those words in the language, you'll find that most of these, even these examples of trying to personify the power of creation or humanize the power of creation are done so in a very elementary way. And, and that's because we're, these are stories that are meant to teach. They're, they're not history. I mean, and, and, you know, I don't claim that our creation story is, um, again, I don't, want, <laughs> I don't want to parallel it to, to what people call the, the Genesis in, in, the, in the Bible. And frankly, I don't think Genesis in the Bible is supposed to be an accurate reflection of, uh, of, of the history of Christians' creation story either. It's just their story. It's not, it's not meant to be history. So this idea of trying to say that land is our church or, or a longhouse is our church or, or a place that we, we worship, even worship is, is a difficult word for, for me to, um, to fully embrace. But we seem to be really, really struggling to try to communicate that we are a prayerful people, that we're a spiritual people, that we're a religious people, and that somehow goodness, you know, just like, you know, other religious folks do, they try to say goodness is, the foundation of goodness comes from their, their culture, from their, their, from their religion. Well, I think atheists can be good people, and I think Christians can be assholes. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just, that's the way it is. And we've seen it. Hitler was a Christian. So, before we get too carried away about where goodness is vested and what is the foundation of goodness, I think we better, we better check up on that a little bit. Where, this, where I find this very problematic is we are always trying to compare ourselves to something in the dominant culture, and we're trying to liken ourselves to it. And sometimes that line gets really blurry. I know I've talked about this before in the past, and I'm going, to, I'm going to mention it again. In our, what we call the funeral ceremonies that we do when, when a loved one passes or somebody in our community passes, we refer to that loved one as returning to their mother. Now, the mother is, our, is, is the earth. It's, our, it's the land, which is literally what happens. So it's not even just metaphoric. I mean, or... or, or it's not just a spiritual thing. I mean, it is kind of metaphoric because we're using words like returning to our mother, but it's returning to the earth. That's not metaphoric. That's, that's actual. But today, I hear many Native people, even the ones who claim to be so traditional, say, oh, our loved one is, uh, is making their journey to the sky world to be with the Creator. That's Christianity, folks. There is very little in our culture that suggests that when we die, we go into the sky world. Now, Again, I'm not trying to speak for all Native people, but as a Haudenosaunee, I know that's, that's true. So when I hear this constant paralleling of 
our culture to, especially to Christianity. I and mean, look, there, there, you don't see a whole lot of our people, you know, referring to that land being like our mosque, you know, or, or our temple. You know, they, they oftentimes will just refer to churches, you know, or, or, or whatever. Why is that necessary? Look, I do understand that there, there have been special, um, maybe even leg- there's legislation, but there's also uh, a special reference to religious freedoms. Well, the problem is, how are you defining religion? So is, is the native culture that puts a high emphasis on our relationship to not just the land, but to, but to nature, to creation, does that meet the definition of religion? And if it does, then why do we got to keep comparing it to churches? Because I don't think we do. And I think it's harmful to do that. And it's harmful for two reasons. And one reason is, is it just sounds fake. I mean, when we say that a, a specific area is our church or that it's like our church, the same as the Mormon church or the Catholic church or you know the Vatican or anything like that, I just don't think those, those are accurate comparisons. And it makes us sound primitive. And there is nothing primitive about really having a strong emphasis in your culture on the relationship with nature. I mean, that's not primitive. <laughs> in fact, as the chickens come home to roost on uh, destroying the planet in the name of capitalism, we're going to find out a lot more about that. So I'm really, really troubled by this whole notion that we can, that we can somehow only justify our claims to land through a religious claim. And look, one of the lawyers in particular mentioned the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And Look, I know this document. I'm not in love with it, but I do talk about it probably more often than I should. And the reason is I talk about it because it is an international standard, the minimum standard that nation states are supposed to follow in terms of how they interact with the indigenous people that they now claim ownership or, uh, or you know, jurisdiction over or whatever, which that's where I find some of this problematic. And there is an article in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that talks about religious freedom. But that's not the only place that someplace like Oak Flats can make a, a, a UN drip argument. There, there are multiple places on here in this document that refer to free, prior, and informed consent. And not just as it relates to religion, but and not just as it relates to our lands, but as it relates to the things they do that impact our lives and our and where we live. So it may be things off our lands, like uh, you know, like crossing the uh, uh, you know crossing the Missouri River with uh, um, uh, with the uh, no dapple with the uh, uh, Dakota Access uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. Sorry about that. The Standing Rock debate. Now. We could argue whether that was our land or not, but there's no question that we would we'd be impacted by it. So the international standard, the minimum standard for our survival and dignity, says that in order for a nation state to implement 
an action or a policy or a practice that is going to have negative impact or any impact on Native people that they must secure free prior and informed consent. Now, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> we have to give free consent. It means, it means we have to agree to it freely, not, not be extorted over it, which <laughs> that can get into a whole other debate over, over things like extorting us for money and land and all kinds of other places and, and other areas, including gaming. But what, our consent is supposed to come freely. It's supposed to come by being fully informed. Now, fully informed, you would think to be fully informed, all of their environmental uh, assessments would, would have been done. Every Native person impacted by, you know, uh, or all Native communities impacted by such a policy would need to consent, not just one. And it would have to, that consent would have to come prior to anything being done. And that's never the case. Trust me, there was no free prior and informed consent in, in, in trying to add this attachment, this rider in, in the dark of night to the National Defense Authorization Act. And that notion of free prior and informed consent is repeated multiple times. It is the most familiar phrase from the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And yet the only place it was cited by one of these lawyers, uh, in, this, in the story anyway, and I don't know if it's, if it's the only place that it's cited in any of their legal arguments, but certainly as it was represented on NPR, the only place it was mentioned was on, on religious freedom. And, and look, I'll say it again. I get it. If fighting this thing on religious grounds is been strategically um, designated as the best argument, well, that's kind of sad. But if it is, then by all means, make it. But you don't have to make our belief system into to conform to what to conform to what somebody else, what a white man might perceive as religion. Religion. We can expand that word so it doesn't just mean Christianity. It doesn't just mean Catholicism or Mormonism or you know whatever, and or or any other. Uh, what they call mainstream organized religion. In fact, the idea that a belief system has to conform and meet some definition of religion, well, if nobody's defining that, then how are you even making that argument? And there are other arguments to be made. The legitimacy of the land transfer. You know, how did that title, and is the, is the title that the U.S. claims to have legitimate? And is it legal for them to, to attach a rider like this on a, on a National Defense Authorization Act in the middle of the night, stripping um, not only the, the land in terms of, you know, for, for mining copper, but stripping away native access to something that has been their ancestral homelands? I mean, beyond the title to the land and, and who, ha who possesses the, the deed to it, there is this idea and this notion that, that Native people do have a right and, and do have a right to access to our ancestral homelands. And, and you know, and look, this, this gets into many other issues, and sometimes these get reduced down to things like, like hunting and fishing. But it's certainly more than that. There, there are many areas that we value for different reasons. 
some of them ceremonial, if you want to, want to say that. Some of them for medicines. Some of them for what has been regarded as, a, as the healing properties of a, of a place or a water or, you know, and, and again, hunting, fishing, all that stuff. But so there's a lot of reasons that this argument can be made. But as I hear this stuff and look, and, and this kind of dovetails into, into a bigger argument uh, about what is our relationship, not, not so just with the land, but with, with our opponents, with, with our adversaries here. I mean, do we really have to call the senators from those states our senators? Are they ours? Is it our constitutional right? Or is it a, a right that limits the Constitution, that prohibits some, by, the, by your Constitution, not ours, by your Constitution, sorry to whoever's listening, I don't mean you specifically, to, do, to doing certain things. The United States cannot limit my, my right to, to speak, for instance. I mean, they can't do it anyway. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's impossible. But within their own laws, they have agreed that there should be no laws that limit, the, uh, limit free speech. Now, that doesn't mean they gave me. And, and look, anybody who says that, oh, I, my father served in the military to fight for your right to, for, to free speech. No, no, he, he didn't. Nobody did. Nobody goes into the military to fight for, and, and especially Native people. <laughs> when I hear this, it just drives me nuts. Nobody joins the military to go fight for my right to speak or protest or any other crap. So, so don't even try that. That's, there's a complete disconnect to what you may have enlisted in the armed forces for and what I'm fighting for here on the ground in, in, my, own, in my own lands. So let's not do that. But we have a tendency to, to, to totally submit ourselves by all means, fight this any way you can fight this thing. But at the end of the day, the way to fight it is by taking action. And I don't, not declaring war here. I mean, we can get into a debate on what some of these aggressive acts that the United States commits against Native people, whether they constitute an act of war or not. I think they certainly would. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about showing up. So whether it's 10,000 people showing up in Standing Rock or, you know, or whether it's, you know, people dismantling equipment. And look, the destruction of equipment is nonviolent. I fully support nonviolent direct action. Fully support it. And if you disable heavy equipment, construction equipment, if you, you know, topple a statue, if you um, chain yourself, you know, across a roadway, none of those are violent acts. You know, if you topple a statue with the intent of knocking on somebody, or even if you do it accidentally, I guess you could claim, claim it's violence. But, but it's not violence. It's nonviolent direct action. We need to fight this thing. Look, I'm, I'm broadcasting this from um, the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation. Down the road here in the city of Buffalo, you've got nurses on strike at a Catholic hospital, you know, health services. So they are refusing to go to work. They are standing out on the road. They are physically demonstrating the inequities that this, you know, this church organization, this hospital, 
um, has in place for, uh, again, for their workplace environment. They are physically, that's how change happens. You know, the, the March on Birmingham, you know, King's speech in Washington, all, all of this stuff. If you don't get people to show up, if you don't get people to step up, if you're relying on whether the courts are going to believe your argument about religious freedom, man, you've already lost. We need to fight this stuff. And, and by fighting, I mean we have to be present. We have to show up. We have to physically do something. And there has to be a cost. One of the ways to discourage some of these things from happening is making sure that the cost to fulfill their strategy is too expensive. Now, one of the ways that we've done it, we've done it sometimes just by, by forcing New York State to spend you know, millions of dollars on, on additional police presence. When we're fighting over tobacco tax and fuel tax and everything else, I mean, we, we heard stories that you know, there was like $30 million a month being set, uh, spent on putting more state troopers out here in Seneca territory. We've, we, you know, we've heard that story over and over again. If you raise the cost of what we think is an, you know, an egregious act against us, then that has to get, get calculated in. So their profitability, and not just their profitability, but their when, when they talk about their return on investment, that return on investment isn't just a total return. It's a return on investment over time. So you make something a slow, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, a slow dime instead of a fast nickel, then they have to recalculate the, uh, the viability of their project. Let a company that wants to copper mine on Oak Flats know that there's going to be a cost. And that cost is going to be prolonged and it's going to be sustained. So, you know, look, you, you go ahead and fight them in their courts. And, you know, you can run for your offices, you know, with the claim that once you get there, you're going to make all this change. But you know what? <laughs> if you think you're going to stand in the way of a National Defense Authorization Act, in spite of the, the corrupt things they've thrown in it, you're probably not going to do that. You know, I dare say that there are native people in Congress, even today, that vote for things that have adverse effects to native people. Now, I'm not saying they don't push through things that are positive for native people. Some of them probably do. But you know what? They will only do so if there's an upside to the United States. Because if whether you're elected or appointed, like, like Deb Haaland as the Interior Secretary, your job is to perform in the, in the national interest of the United States. Most of our battles with the United States would never be considered in the best interest of the United States. So the only time that we're going to see something positive out of Congress, out of, you know, administrators, executives, whoever, is if it has a, a benefit to them. Now, the other thing that I heard on this, this fight over Oak Flats um, there was a constant um, reiteration that Congress did this. Congress attached the transfer of Oak Flats to this, uh, to this copper mining company. That Congress did it, and only Congress can fix it. Well, one lawyer did speak up, and, and i got to give her props, and I don't remember which one it was. Um, don't remember the names anyway. But, um, and she said, I don't agree with that. 
the whole idea is with the idea of challenging something from for for its constitutionality is is to challenge the actions of Congress. If, if Congress passes a law that is unconstitutional, it doesn't require Congress to, to fix it. The, you know, the, the courts can say, no, that's not, that's unconstitutional. And I don't know how. But, you know, for all those who, who want to rave about the, the U.S. Constitution, including the Bill of Rights and, you know, and all these, these wonderful amendments, the likelihood is it was legal for them to do what they did. And so by saying it was legal to attach this midnight rider to a National Defense Authorization Act, it means that it's that it in all likelihood is constitutional. Why? Because the Constitution sucks. And it's not for us. It was never for us. In fact, we weren't even a part of it. Read the Constitution. We were not a part of it. We weren't part of we the people. There's a reference in there about where they, they cite Indians not taxed. Now, it wasn't just saying that we shouldn't be taxed. What it was referring to was enumeration and representation in Congress. And it said that our numbers, Native people, Indians, especially the ones not taxed, and that's what they said, Indians not taxed, that we will not have representation in Congress. Why? Because we weren't a part of them. We were a distinct people, not a part of the United States. In the... Um, the, the articles associated with the executive powers, they said that uh, the um, executive had the, had the authority to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and, and quote-unquote, Indian tribes. Well, you don't negotiate a treaty with your own people. We weren't the, those people. We were right there, listed right alongside foreign nations. Why? Because we were a distinct nation, Although the whole foreign thing gets, you know, is, is a tough word because the United States was setting up on our lands. We weren't the foreigners that the United States was. The, the only other place is, uh, is the Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution that says Congress held the power to regulate commerce in and among several states with foreign nations and with Indian tribes or with Indians. Not of Indians, with Indians. So again, they could regulate Commerce in amongst the states, the, regulate with uh, commerce with foreign nations and with India. Now, so who are they regulating? Are they regulating foreign nations? No. They're regulating their people on what their people can do. This is where the, the Non-Intercourse Act comes in, where, where, where people were prohibited from trying to buy our lands. That was under the power of, uh, uh, you know, granted to Congress to, to tell their people, no, you can't do that. And yet, <laughs> there have been land, we've been screwed out of land any, any number of ways, both on the private, you know, at the private level and, and at the governmental level. Oak Flats is a travesty, but it isn't just a religious in, uh, infringement. We've, look, we just have to stop trying to justify our existence by, by saying, well, well, yeah, we're just like Christians. We have a church. It's, you know, it's this place. No, we aren't just like Christians. And when I literally hear a chief, elected chief, mind you, suggest that, that our belief systems are no different than, than Christian beliefs. I mean, that's literally what he said. And as I'm throwing up in my mouth, look, we've got to stop doing this thing. We have to draw 
our distinction, not our similarities. Our distinction is why we can fight these things. And, and if we only think we can fight these things as Americans, well, then we've already lost that battle. I refuse to accept subjugation or assimilation. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that I'm not a victim of assimilation policies, absolutely, but I didn't, none of these were things that I, that I accepted. They may have impacted me, and we all may be impacted. And look, I've made it real clear what my view is about voting in U.S. elections, or Canadian elections, by the way, or running for office, or enlisting in the armed forces. And I'm not condemning people who do it. I'm, I don't agree with it, but I do condemn those who want to who, who insist that's the only way to fight back, is to join the oppressors. I'm sorry, I, I just don't agree. And I resent, regardless of your individual motives or justification, I resent you condemning anybody who wants to maintain a level of distinction and autonomy. Because I find myself fighting my own people or, or people who at least once were my people. Now they're Americans. If you vote in an American election, you're an American. They're the only ones who can, or you're, if you vote in a U.S. election, you're a U.S. citizen. How do I know that? Because only U.S. citizens can vote in U.S. elections. Only Canadian citizens can vote in Canadian elections. So if you're native and you vote in those elections, you are acknowledging fully, voluntarily, that you have been subjugated and that you have been assimilated, at least to the extent that you are now a part of their electorate. Now, we can, we can argue how much people are still maintaining you know, some, some cultural identity. And, I, and I'm not suggesting that you flushed it all away. But you're flushing some of it away. And if you aren't fighting things, and I don't understand. Look, I understand the UN Decla Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has no bite to it. Then call out the UN. Call them out on it. Fight them. And I'll tell you one another thing, and this is where I flip over from uh, from Oak Flats to Bears Ears and the uh, you know the Grand Staircase or, or whatever uh, any of these other. If if our lands have to become national monuments, U.S. national monuments or parks to be protected, then they're they're not being protected for us. You know they're being protected for for the United States. For their posterity, not for ours. And we, we see, you know, Oak Flats is a perfect example. I mean, because with a swipe of the pen, they can claim our lands. And, and where does it come down to? Where does it come from? The doctrine of Christian discovery. The idea that the Christian nations of Europe and their offspring, like the United States and Canada, by virtue of being Christian nations, mind you, so much for that separation of church and state crap, that they can claim title to land of people who are not Christians. Now, and once we've been converted, we are still we are still subjugated. And in fact, the the irony of this whole thing is the very thing the thing that they're claiming are rights of Christians. Do not exist for native people when they be, when they become Christians. In fact, that becoming Christian becomes one of the reasons to uh, to no longer acknowledge our distinction and our autonomy. And so this brings me back. 
It's not just about being Christian. It's about being Christian-like. And that's where I have so many problems with this idea of comparing our culture, our belief system, to religious dogma and, and religious beliefs. So this is, this is real, folks. And I just, you know, when I listened to, to this whole program, I never heard the solid argument about how our system, our belief systems, are more tied to our connection to land and creation. And when I say creation, I don't mean just the land. I mean everything, everything. For the most part, most of the native cultures that I'm familiar with, and so it's not all of them, that lies at the core, at the foundation of our belief system, our relationship. So even when we do what we call the ohun de gori the the words before Allah, and we, and we acknowledge everything from, from, the, from the people to the ground, to all the things that live on the ground, the animals, the plants, trees, all, the water, all as, as we acknowledge all of that, and then we leave and we go into acknowledging the air and the weather and the moon and the sun and the stars. Look, we personify some of those things too, humanize them. We you know, call the grandmother or the moon our grandmother. The moon's not really our grandmother. We call the sun our, the eldest brother, the eldest warrior. We call the distant stars, we call those our distant relatives. No, this isn't like Lion King where the leaders of the past, you know, waft up way up into sky and become the stars. No, that's Disney, folks. When you stop with the Disney. No, we just are acknowledging our relationship. So even as we talk about water, we don't just acknowledge water on the ground. We don't just acknowledge the, the lakes and the streams and the oceans. We acknowledge the fog. The rain, the snow. We acknowledge the water that passes with our women when they give birth to, to our children. We acknowledge that at nights when it cools down, that water just collects as in the form of dew. This invisible rainfall that, that happens, you know, almost every evening is, you know, when it's not freezing out. I mean, this is so why do we do it? It's about acknowledging and about understanding our relationship. Now, is it religious? Uh, I mean, I, I've listened to some people call the opening or the Ohundurriyudekwa or the Ganunyuk, they call it a prayer. No, it's not. And I wish we would stop trying to convince people that we are a prayerful people. Because most of what we do, even in terms of ceremonies, it is not praying to the Creator, it's acknowledging and giving thanks to the power and the evidence of creation. Now, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't care if in doing so, many people feel the need to humanize that power of creation for the, for the sake of storytelling or acknowledgement or giving thanks or whatever else. But when I hear the word God and creator being interchanged, that's problematic to me. Because that's almost like this full acknowledgement that we're just using what we think are more native type words 
aren't native words, and creator is not our word, to parallel the dominant culture around us. And that's assimilation. That's what it is. You know, another thing that, I, that I've got to bring up is this notion of pretendians. Now, this is a made-up term. I don't know who made it up. I know Jackie Keeler is, is one of the ones who uses this all the time. And, we, we, you know, we hear this expression, pretendians, apples, um, you know, frauds, um, allies. I don't know what is going on with, with Jackie Keeler. I mean, this is, you know, a, a woman who kind of gained some notoriety, I guess, um, from fighting the mascot issue. Then got pissed off at half of the you know half of the people fighting the mascot issue because apparently she didn't think she was getting her due, which raises the question: Then what are you fighting this for? And in dealing with the mascot issue and other issues, we sometimes do get get confronted with people who are asserting that they're native people when it's a you know a dubious assertion at best and probably fraud at worst. Now, if you are an ally of Native people and you have been told your whole life or part of your life or maybe you went and got a 23andMe um, <laughs> DNA test and now realize or believe that you have some Native ancestry, I don't have a problem with that. And, and I don't need to press you on your claim to Native ancestry. But there is a big difference between being Native and being a native descendant. If you're not living the culture, if you don't have a connection to family, native family, or native community, or native governance, or a, a native territory, if you have none of those connections, if you're living as a white person, and if you only just recently discovered or, or heard through some family lore that you have some, you're not a native person. You're just not. That doesn't mean you can't be an ally. I think there are some great people who have done some great work who may or may not have Native ancestry. And the work that they do is what they should be judged, judged by. Now, look, as we, as we battle this, this mascot issue, and this came up even in this recent uh, discussion over the Atlanta Braves and their tomahawk chop, the, the commissioner of baseball... This guy's last name is Manfred. Suggested that Atlanta has done the proper outreach to the native community in their market. And what this commissioner of baseball said is that the native people of that market fully approve of, uh, of not only the name, the Braves, but the Tomahawk Chop. Now, I don't know how he has determined this, but I suspect it's not unlike when the Washington football team was getting polls conducted where people could self-identify as native or Indians and then go on to assert as an Indian that the mascot issue is fine with them. Didn't matter if it's a racial slur like redskin. Doesn't matter if it's a, you know, if it's something derogatory like warrior or savage or, or, or whatever. And, and I don't mean warrior to be derogatory, but, um, but specifically savage and, and redskin 
or Red Raider. Like that's what we do. You know, we're if you're a native person, then you're you're automatically associated with the idea of raiding. You know, poor white villages. And this this notion that is is perpetrated with with all of these mascots is that we are a violent people, that we are aggressive. I know, yeah, they, they try to put some stuff in there. They try to use words like noble and brave and courageous. But let's face it, it's it's about violence. I mean, even the tomahawk chop is literally representing bludgeoning somebody with a with a stone axe. And you've got a creepy number, sometimes 10, 20, 30,000 people in a in a baseball stadium or even 40 or 50 in a football stadium doing the, doing this kind of thing. You know, and the Atlanta Braves didn't even, it's not even their thing. They actually stole it or borrowed it or whatever, appropriated it, which is kind of crazy. Appropriated the tomahawk chop from the, the Florida State Seminoles of all people. And I don't mean the, the actual native people. I mean the, the Seminoles of the mascot for Florida State University. So when, when I, what we do is we confront people who, who may or may not have Native ancestry, but have completely joined in on the white side of this argument. And there, look, it, if you're offended by the idea that there, that there is an us and them component to, to many things, then if that bothers you, then, then I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Now, I'm not saying that, that I hate all Americans or I hate all white people or anything, nothing like that. Look, I've got family uh, that have different political ideologies than I do, uh, you know, that, are, that run the full gamut of, you know, other race mixing and that kind of stuff. So, no, it's not that. But if you're a racist and you demonstrate some of these, these racist this racist behavior specifically against native people. And I'm, I'm going to fight you whether it's, whether you demonstrate racist behavior against anybody, but certainly when, when I feel confronted by that, whether you're this moronic teacher, you know, spouting Sokotoa in California, you know, or whether you're the commissioner of baseball trying to justify one baseball team with their native mascot and logo and their, creepy behavior in the stadium as opposed to someplace like Cleveland, which acknowledged that yes, their name was, was wrong, offensive. And they need, I mean, this baseball commissioner literally tried to suggest that Atlanta did it right. And somehow Cleveland did it wrong because native people opposed you know, the name of the Cleveland baseball team, but they don't oppose, you know, in, in the, the local market. And look, when I hear people talk about the local market, let's be clear. Racism is very popular in some communities. Yeah, I said it. Racism is a hallmark of some communities. So when you're going to say, well, the local sentiment towards a racist behavior is approval, so it's, so it's okay. We don't, we, we don't need to look at this thing at, uh, on a national basis. I mean, it's the American Baseball League and National Baseball League. It's supposed to be America's favorite pastime. and eh, not so much. So when I when I hear this this commissioner not just defending but but endorsing this native reference name, this native mascot on on you know one of the few teams in pro, pro sports left and this 
kind of racist behavior, this idea of symbolizing bludgeoning your adversaries with a stone axe and saying that it's okay because the native people around Atlanta think it's fine. I know what kind of native people they got around Atlanta to say so. The same ones who claim their grandmother's a Cherokee princess and who have self-identified on a phone pole. They didn't go to native leadership. They didn't go to native communities. And why? Because there's barely any native communities around Atlanta. Why? Because they were ran off. They were forced to march in the trails of tears. A third of them dying along the way. So, I'm sorry, Commissioner of Baseball. You're a freaking liar. You haven't done any research to determine whether this thing has been handled properly locally or where that local market ends and the rest of the country begins. Your country? I know there are Cherokee, there are Choctaw, there are, uh, there are any number of Native peoples from that area who oppose this. And they've done so publicly. They've done so nationally. In Native organizations, not only their, their own nations, but in, uh, in organizations like the NCAI. So, you're a goddamn liar. But I would have, I, look, this whole idea of pretendians, I have no problem going after those who are trying to claim Native ancestry so they can speak on our behalf, not do good work or, or research or, or write or, or whatever else. But if you're utilizing your claim to be, to, to be to being Native to silence other Native voices, I have a problem with that. But that's not where Jackie Keeler is with any of this anymore. She's now just, you know, she, she has her pretendians list. And, you know, look, I'm speaking out against that. I'll probably end up on it. And you know what? I'm not an enrolled tribal member of a federally recognized tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States? I refuse to be. I would, I will never allow my identity, identity to be reduced to a tribal member, a member of a tribe, a member, not a citizen of a distinct nation, not an autonomous individual, a sovereign people. I'll claim that, but I will not allow myself or the federal government to reduce me to a member of a tribal organization. And if that's the standard or some of these stupid DNA tests, most of which are so inaccurate, there is no DNA test that's going to, that's going to definitively say, oh yes, you are native. And so, yeah, I had no problem with, with some of the, uh, with the grief that went, uh, that went Elizabeth Warren's way. Mostly because where she went, Harvard or wherever it was, did list her as a minority. For whatever benefit the school had or she got or anything else. Or I've also seen some of the, um, her filings to be accepted in certain courts that she listed herself as Native. Why? You're a white woman. And even if your, your family lore suggests that there's somehow Cherokee, of course, it's almost always Cherokee, in your ancestry, you know you've never lived as a, as a Native person. Regardless of where your family is from, yeah, just because you go back a few generations and you can tie yourself to Oklahoma, that doesn't make you Native. 
and and look, if somebody comes to me and tells me that they have native ancestry, I don't question it right away. And I don't question that. But what I do ask is, well, oh yeah, well, um, who's your family? And and where's your, where are you from? And when have you been there last? I mean, I will ask questions because it's kind of the polite way, and, and culturally, it's the way that you you bring you begin that introduction. You introduce yourself by who your family is, who your people are, who what your culture is, where you're from. And if you don't have any answers to any of that, that back up your claim to being native, okay, I get it. You are you 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 may have some native ancestry. Well, that's cool. That's good. That doesn't make you a native person. There's a difference because your identity has been completely shaped by being being a, a U.S. citizen. My concern is how many native people, even living on native territories, maybe being a lawyer defending a land claims, or a chief sitting a you know <laughs> sitting in a position, how many of you are now more defined? by your U.S. citizenship than by your, your own native identity. That's, man, that's a concern. It should be a concern to everybody. I understand native people are not a monolith. There's a full spectrum of people who, some who are very much farther out than I am on this idea of distinction and autonomy and sovereignty. And then there's some that are so completely assimilated they, you know, they, they, they run for office, they serve in the military, they, you know, they, they're, they're part of the U.S. party politics or on the Canadian side, the same, same thing. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane for John Kane and Regan DeLoggins and Resistance Radio. Yahweh.